Welcome to the Broken Token Classic Arcade and Pinball Podcast. Well, I've got Whitney sitting across the desk from me here at Louisville Arcade Expo 2015, and he just looks unbelievably excited. He is about ready to come out of his headset. What's going on, Whitney? I'm giddy, and there's really no two ways to say that because... Brent, at this year's Louisville Arcade Expo, we we had a seminar uh, that was uh, that was attended. I think probably one of the strongest, uh, easiest way to say, is probably one of the strongest attended seminars that I've seen ever in the five years of the show. And I think a lot of that had to do with the pre, with the presenter and the content. We were fortunate enough to have Mr. David Crane attend Louisville Arcade Expo and give a seminar on how he approached development for the Atari 2600. It gave a lot of backstory on his years at Activision, uh, development of some of the games, uh, Pitfall, Kaboom, Laser Blast, everything that he was associated with. And Brent, this was a very technical presentation that had a lot, a lot going on. So I was very fortunate to be able to grab the audio and the video for that seminar. And what we're going to have here and this podcast episode is the audio from the David Crane Seminar. Now, for regular listeners of the podcast, everyone realizes we are classic arcade and pinball. Yes. And if you're thinking, hey, this is console stuff, I don't care, I urge everybody to listen. We had the opportunity, Whitney had the opportunity to do this. I can see the excitement in his eyes. Yes. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend. I'm going to go back and listen to the interview the console, the 2600, is something that's near and dear to a lot of us. And even if you didn't grow up with the 2600, uh, it's still a computer, just like the computers that are in a pinball machine or a video game. And it will give you insight as to what it takes to make one of these things, one of these objects that we just so enjoy, what it takes to make them work. Yeah. I mean, the 2600 in the console generation is, is seminal to to everything that happens in our hobby. So we all have relevant we all have context to this and it's relevant to us in some form or fashion so yes please sit back and enjoy this uh this seminar and presentation by mr david crane all right hey that sounds great all right welcome everybody to the arcade expo day two is everybody having a great time It's been pretty awesome. Anyone participating in the, uh, what do we have today? We have Contra coming up next, uh, tournament. Uh, we have the kids' costume competition, which is always amazing. The adult costume competition. It's going to be a full day. Pretty serious business. Um, but first, and the reason that we're all here, and the reason that this room is now standing room only, is that we have the founder of Activision, the creator of Pitfall, the creator of Ghostbusters, legendary game creator, David Crane. Everybody put your hands together. Welcome him to the stage. <laughs> Let's get this thing started. All right, so your organizers have sat me down here so I don't block the screen back there. But you don't need to look at me anyway. It's all up there. Um, yeah, a little bit about me. I, um, I, I attended my first video game conference in 1976, which is 39 years ago, whatever. So. Parents, when your kids say they want to be, go, get into video games and you tell them it's not a lifetime career, well, it can be. I'm still doing it. Um, started at Atari with Nolan Bushnell in 1977. 
and did a bunch of games on the Atari 2600. Um, we then created the Atari 800 computer system. And about that time, Atari started to fall apart. So um, some buddies of mine and I left Atari to found Activision. And we founded Activision on the principle that video game design is authorship. It's just like the author of a book. We should credit the authors of a game just like you would credit the author of a book. Whereas Atari thought of us as just nameless engineers in the back room. And uh, so Activision pioneered a lot of things, and that's one of them. So when you see designers being credited for video game work, that dates back to 1979 when we founded Activision. Um, we also um, we were the first third-party developer of video game cartridges. So Atari cartridges were made by Atari. So if you had an Atari 2600, what you plugged into the Atari 2600 up to that point was made by Atari. If you had the Intellivision system, Mattel, who owned the Intellivision, made the games. So what Activision did was, hey, let's, let's make games for other people's systems, and founded that entire industry. I mean, I gave a talk at GDC once and asked for a show of hands of who works for a third-party publisher or developer, and every hand in the room went up, except for the six guys standing on the wall over there from Sony, because Sony owns hardware and makes games. So. so, you know, it's a big deal. But we're going back to Atari days prior to Activision, um, way back into, let's say, 1975. Atari was really the leader in arcade games. They had Pong, you know, the biggest hit. I'm sure you've all heard the story, but uh, Nolan likes to tell it that um, they put Pong in a, a bar in Sunnyvale, a, <clears throat> a bar that I've been in. Um, and uh, they got a call a couple days later, said, it's broken, you got to come fix it. And they came, and the reason it was broken is it wouldn't take any more quarters. The coin slot was full, the machine was full. They had to empty it just to let it play again. So, it, you know, Pong was a revolution. It, it started, uh, started something big. And... Um, Atari had quite a coin-op uh, di division making arcade games back then. And what Nolan really wanted to do was bring his arcade game hits home. I mean, who, who went to the arcade and played a game with quarters wouldn't like to be able to also play it at home. So uh, they started building the Atari, uh, the machine that became the Atari 2600. Now, here's the problem. Um, an arcade game was custom hardware designed for whatever game that the arcade designer wanted to make. Probably a couple thousand dollars worth of hardware. They sold the machines for three, four, five thousand, depending on the machine. And we had to make a, um, a game console that you could sell for a couple hundred bucks at Sears and uh, capable of doing at least something close to all those same games. So... Um, we're talking about 1975. We're talking about a time where, you know, we, we all know about pixels now. We think, oh, it's 1024 by 768, and each pixel is 8 bits or 12 bits or 16 bits. Um, there really weren't pixels back then to, the, to that extent because the amount of memory required would have been prohibitive. A, a byte per pixel, which is the minimum you might do, um, would have cost you know, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars worth of RAM. So the, um, the creators got very creative with the Atari 2600. 
And what they did was they, they looked at the television set. We don't even have those anymore. We, well, I guess we have them here. But in your home, you've got LCD displays that actually have each pixel. But a tube television set scans the picture. It's got an um, electron beam that is driven side to side to side to side and turns on and off, and it, it paints the picture onto the inside of the picture tube. So basically, here's one of those. <clears throat> and as you see, <clears throat> the picture runs from left to right, um, scanning. And then if you can see it, there's a faint red retrace where the beam turns off and goes back to the left side. So that's how an electron gun paints the picture inside a TV set. Um, as an engineer growing up and being taught in the 60s and 70s, this was very common knowledge for me, but a lot of people have never seen this before. They don't realize that that's actually how the TV was painting. So basically, um, they said, well, let's, let's look at that scan line. Let's just look at the top one and, and see if we can divide it into dots that we can draw, like pixels, but um, you can't do the entire screen. So they decided that the fastest CPU they could get running was a 6502 running at a little, little over one megahertz. Um, and the hardware that they could make would divide this scan line into 228 total dots, um, 160 of them visible, and then 68 while it's retracing, and then another 100, 160 visible. Um, this stuff looks technical, it's not just the idea is that you've got dots being drawn on the screen. Um, and so the 6502 running at this 1.2 megahertz can perform 76 CPU cycles during that entire time, all 228 of those pixels. So if you think about it, the CPU is running at the same time that the TV is scanning, and it's able to do 76 cycles worth of processing during that time. That will become important. So if you look at that, that's a single scan line. Now, making a picture out of those, there'd be about a 200 of those. You've got 160 by approximately 200. And if we were just to control every pixel on that single scan line, it would take 160 bytes of RAM. There's 160 of them, and you want to have about a byte per pixel to make a picture. 160 bytes of RAM for one pixel. Um, the Atari 2600 only has 128 bytes of total RAM. That's for your game, for your scores, for everything, for positions of the players, positions of the objects. So they obviously couldn't do that. So what they ended up doing <coughs> is controlling some of the pixels. And it turns out they, could, they decided to control 19 of them. Um, 19 of them is two movable 8-bit objects. So there's eight of those pixels sequentially. Somewhere else can be another eight. And then it, they did three 1-bit objects, which were for each, the 8-bits the, the were for players, player objects like the tanks we'll see later. And the um, first two of those were for the tank's missiles, and the third movable one-bit object was for the um, Pong ball. <coughs> Sorry. 
<clears throat> so <clears throat> this is one of the player objects being rendered here. <clears throat> and so if I tell this player object that that is its bit pattern and I move it around, those are the bits that I turn on on a single line. Same thing with the missile. It's only one dot. So it can be in any one of the 160 positions and its dot can be off or on. That's it. That's all you got. Um, so the way you would control these players is, as I say, you move them into position. Then, using a pattern in ROM, you pull out one byte out of the ROM and write it to that player. As you see, it's changing. So these, this dot pattern is in the ROM, and the program is reading this and writing it to there. So if in subsequent lines you take subsequent bytes, you can create an object that looks like something. And here we're doing the tank. Same thing with the missile. You turn it on wherever you want it to turn on. So like right there, you know, you turn it on where it has to be to look like it's being shot out of the tank. So doing that eight lines at a time, you get an eight line tall object, and then you change where you start in the ROM each time, and you get this player object, this tank can exist. So again, I'm only controlling, in this particular case, um, nine dots out of the 160, and yet I can create a tank, put it anywhere on the screen, and a missile, and put it anywhere on the screen. Similar thing, it's um, pretty much what I've described. So in addition, they said, well, that's not good enough. We have to have a play field in which to play. And um, I'll stop here and talk again a little bit about the uh, Atari's philosophy here. Atari owned a lot of arcade games and wanted to um, sell them in the home, as I said. So the engineers were trying to figure out, well, if we can make a couple of our games with this hardware and then maybe let the programmers loose on it and see if they can figure out how to use the same hardware to do some of our other arcade games, we'll be fine. So they literally designed this system to play Tank and Pong. And actually, Biplane, which was another game that was in the arcade, there's one out here that was at the same time as Tank, which is the same hardware as Tank, it's just they changed the graphics to planes and changed the field a little bit, and you fly the biplanes around instead of driving a tank around. So, you know, think about this. It's 1975, they're designing this with the earliest technology available, and if they can get it to do two games, they'd be happy. And uh, as we know, it became a lot more successful than that, capable of doing many more games. I'm gonna explain why that happened. But first of all, they wanted to do 40 bits of play field, and even then they didn't have enough space on the integrated circuit to do all 40, so they only did 20. And they had these three registers that if a bit turns on, here's the bit of the play field that would be on that scan line, and your only choice is to have 20 bits repeated in the second half or reflected in the second half. 
And if you look at that, so that we can cover the entire screen by just controlling these registers. So basically, you can see that you can make a pattern. And if you make a pattern for one line, and a different pattern for the second line, and a different pattern for the third line, you can make a shape, which is how those things worked. So again, we were only going to make uh, tank and pong, uh, and whatever else we can figure out. So um, that's why we ended up with two player objects and two missile objects. And if you've never played it, this is how it works. You uh, navigate the tank object through until you can shoot and then fire at it with your one-bit object. So now we're going to go and look at the tank screen. And now that you know how this works, you'll be able to see where these things all, all happen. All right, this is the tank screen from combat, the, arc, uh, the home game. Uh, the arcade game looked a lot like this. But if you'll notice, the, um, the play field is used for this. And it's changed every few lines to make these shapes. So you see if that shape exists here and you have the reflect bit on, it's now shows up in the second half like that. So as long as you design a game with a symmetrical play field, this hardware can do it. That's kind of the key, is designing the game that the hardware could do rather than um, trying to make it do something it couldn't do. And the same thing with the player object. As the screen is being painted by the scans, our microprocessor is following along. It's, it's lined up with each scan line. And so for the first so many, it puts out zero into the player zero object. Then it puts out the first line of the tank, second line of the tank, third line of the tank, and so on. And at the end, it starts putting out zeros. And now there's a tank. Now, if I put out half as many zeros, the tank would be up here. If I put out more zeros, the tank would be down here. So the program is deciding where does the tank go vertically. The hardware is deciding where does it go horizontally. And I get to control only eight bits on the screen for that. Um, the score is something I'm actually going to gloss over a little bit here, but um, before you start the tank game, you could also use the same hardware uh, registers, and I think that's also using Playfield to make these big blocky um, numbers. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you go out and look at that biplane game, I think that one's in black and white, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, we're, we're starting this project in 1995. I wasn't there yet, but the engineers were. And um, there weren't a lot of colors in arcade games. Uh, color monitors cost three times as much as black and white monitors. That was probably the main reason. Um, but your uh, 2600 was going to be hooked up to the color TV at home, so they had to add color. And they did a pretty good job. Um, those are the colors available on the 2600. And you'll see a lot of games using a lot of these colors. Uh, one of Activision's philosophies was we only used about five of them. Uh, some of the colors are really ugly on the screen. I mean, you know, these off magentas and you know, really ugly colors don't look very good. So we stuck with, you know, the blacks, black and white, the grays, yellow, good red, good green, good blue, and, you know, tried to make our pictures much more primary because they look nicer. Uh, in our first trade show at Activision, um, 
we had people just come all the way down into the third basement at McCormick Place where we had our cheap little booth and uh, just said, how come your games look so much better than the rest of them? And it's simple things like that. Choosing the better looking colors uh, made a big difference. <laughs> a little more technical information. I hope I'm not losing anybody getting too technical. Um, that's why I have these little animated things to help explain, just see what it's doing rather than just uh, be described. But um, the, the chip designer who was working on this chip for, for the Atari 2600, he decided, you know, if he could add just a tiny little thing that gave it a little more capability, he would do that. If he could squeeze it in, he did that. And if anybody remembers playing um, the combat cartridge, sometimes you were playing against one biplane, and other times you were playing against two and three, and they were flying together. And one register implemented in this hardware made all of this possible. It's still only one object, but the hardware outputs it three times on the screen. So if I changed its first line to look like that, it's going to show up again here and again here. And um, he gave all sorts of capabilities, including quad size, you know, all these different spacings and such. And of course, with one bit, he could flip the thing to face the other direction, which saved a lot of ROMs. So he didn't have to have two sets of pictures for the direction that the uh, character was going. So this little thing that he added was actually pretty key. Um, they made their tank cartridge, they made their Pong cartridge, and yet before the 2600 was done, we made hundreds and hundreds of games, and it's because of that little thing that Joe DeCure added to the hardware, this thing we call new size. And the ability to use the player multiple times across the screen gave us all sorts of power, because otherwise there would only, every game we would have done would have had two players shooting a missile at each other. I mean, how many different kinds of games can you make that do that? But that gave us the ability to control more pixels than just 19. Now, the way we had to do that is the microprocessor, we all know the microprocessor was running along, along with the scan line, and it was dealing with the scan. Well, if the microprocessor could also make changes during the scan, it could actually change the graphics to the second and third copy of that biplane into something else. And that became very popular. So um, I'll describe some of the advanced techniques that we used. Um, horizontal banding is one of the most powerful. Um, you saw with tank, we could have a score up here and then it, the gameplay down here with the tanks. Well, by banding, you could basically use the hardware that the 2600 was capable of uh, over again, over and over and over again. So I have two players, two missiles, and a ball on, and play field on one line, and then change how the screen looks and use them differently, and then use them differently. Um, the first example um, is air-sea battle. Does anybody remember air-sea battle in the combat cartridge? Um, there was the score, and then there were these missile launchers at the bottom. And then you see these bands, everything was changed in bands, you can't see it behind the text, but there are airplanes. 
um, flying back and forth. So now a, a hardware system that had two 8-bit objects now has what, 12? And it's a trick. It's the same object, but it's being reused as you go down the screen, retasked by the microprocessor. Um, and then the missile actually has to be written in each band as itself. We don't reuse the missile because the missile has to pass through each band and remain contiguous. So you could reuse one player, which is what we did, and then um, the missile was done for the whole screen uh, the same way. So basically, by using horizontal banding, you can have your own copy of all the hardware and reuse them. See, so we have another one. This one's really technical. Um, I feel like I'm losing half the audience, so I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. But um, you set. We used to do this a lot when we were trying to describe to our cohort work, workers what we were going to do. So, all right, that's player zero. Here's player one. On this line, there's six of them. And, uh, you know, so we're always doing, and then there's like the wide, use the wide one and the narrow one, and you can get something that looks like this. And, um, but anyway, so you can see player zero here has three copies. Player one has three copies. And they're jammed right up next to each other. So in essence, it looks like I might have the ability to control 48 pixels in a row and make something really big instead of this little tiny little tank. First use was uh, to make a large number of uh, digits for score. <coughs> so you'd make a, um, a score font in ROM like that. And again, imagine that the microprocessor is running along it knows right where the scan line is, and it can do something at a certain time. So if in this environment we write 1 and 2 to player 0 and player 1, player one, player 0 will look like a 1, player 1 will look like a 2, and all of their subsequent copies will be the same unless I do something about it. Because again, the hardware is just going to clock out the same data. Now when I say put a 1 in player 0, remember, that's shortcut for saying on the first line, put the first byte of the one into player zero. On the second line, put the second byte of one into player zero. So we're still doing this loop processing anyway. But now inside the loop, if we, if we do a write in, in this range, if we write a three to player zero, now we have the one has already been displayed. That's gone. That's passed in time. Two has just, is being displayed right now. And before three comes up, before the second copy of player zero comes up, we've written a three into it. So, and again, if we don't do anything else, it will be two, three, two sticking out like that. But again, then I write the four in here before the sec second player one. I write the five in here before the third player zero. I write the six in here before the third player one. And I can actually create six unique digits of display using just my two 8-bit objects and their multiple copies that Joe DeCure put in on a whim. Um, so basically, that doesn't have to be um, numbers. It can be graphics. Um, in fact, I used it in the game Dragster, where you can have this really big, high-resolution drag racer. So 
that's just a technique. When I developed, I developed that technique while at Atari, and um, the chip designer, Jay Miner, who has since passed away, um, was walking through the lab just to see what we did, and he walked up and looked over my shoulder and just stood there with his mouth open because he knew what he designed. He designed two players and a missile. I mean, the fact that we were able to take this obscure trick and turn it into something like this, now our, our scores could look as good as like Nintendo three, five years later. I mean, we have multiple digits, we have characters on the screen. So it was, um, it was some of the lucky things that were put into the 2600 hardware that made it possible. Let's see, we got another advanced technique. All right, here's another way to do the exact same thing. Atari, um, Atari did a chess game, and they really didn't want to do a chess game, but the original box in which the 2600 and the Sears Telegames Arcade were sold had a picture of a chess, I think it was either a knight or a rook. All right, in all the graphics, one of the graphics designers said, oh, let's, that's a game, let's put that on there. And somebody came back and complained that they bought it because they saw the chess piece, and it doesn't play chess. So they sent three of the more talented designers in the back and said, stop everything you're doing, we have to have a chess game. So one guy worked on the chess algorithm, which played pretty well for a 1970s or early 80s game, whenever that was. Um, but to make the display, how do you make eight by eight matrix of movable objects out of two players and two missiles and a ball. Well, Bob Whitehead figured it out. And this is part of the um, chess display of the Atari 2600 game video chess. And what you can see is a technique that we ended up calling a Venetian blind because it looks like you're looking at the screen through a Venetian blind. And all we did was we, we positioned the players, again, do this thing like this, and then moved them eight pixels back and forth every other scan line and change their graphics. So basically you can see that inside the little white box the only data that's actually visible is where the P0 and P1s are and the rest is blank. And yet it comes across as looking like chess pieces. So again they had to solve this graphic issue just to make games like chess possible. Um, so that's, that's the technical gist of it. There's a lot more, but again, I don't want to talk too much about the, the technical, but I did want to get everybody grounded in it uh, to understand how crazy the thing was. Microprocessor had to know where the scan was, not just vertically, which is not too hard, but also horizontally. So you were synchronized with the picture as it was being painted on your TV set and making changes all the way down. And you get all the way to the bottom, and then what do you do next frame? You have to do the entire thing all over again. You have to, st when you get to the top of the screen, you have to start, and the, the CPU is spending all of its time drawing these pixels. Um, I did a game called Freeway, and the question, why is it a chicken? Um, three days before we were taking Freeway to its first trade show, January CES, um, we were talking about how we were going to promote it at the show. And um, our CEO, Jim Levy, he said, well, you know, if it were a chicken, 
crossing the road instead of the little man that I had at the time. Um, I could hire the San Diego chicken, who was a famous chicken at the time. Um, he went to trade shows, or actually he went to sporting events and danced around and advertised whoever's uh, jersey he was wearing. I could hire the San Diego chicken and he could come walk the floor and send people to our booth. And um, I actually liked the idea of turning into a chicken because the man graphics didn't look very good. I never liked them. So this was one of those seldom do the game design change because of the promotions department, but in this particular case it did. I liked the chicken better. So I turned it into a chicken that night and uh, he called the San Diego chicken who instructed us that we could have the San Diego chicken at our trade show, imagine out here running around, um, $5,000 for one day appearance, um, airfare from San Francisco to Las Vegas for two, including the chicken assistant, which was his, his girlfriend who helped him with his head, you know, got, somebody had to put the head on when he's all done, um, and a suite at the Desert Inn Hotel, and you know, he ticked off all these things. And we're reading this letter and our, um, our director of PR, who was born to be a director of PR, his name was Fred Hypes, H-Y-P-E-S. Um, he said, you know, I can rent a chicken suit and run around the floor, and that's exactly what he did. So for $50, he rented a chicken suit and uh, ran around and did it. But the whole impetus was turn it into a, a chicken crossing the road and um, it made a better story. I mean, now we could market it that way. It's why did the chicken cross the road is the old story. And, but look at the screen. We have horizontal bands. <clears throat> we have a two-digit score up here. That's using the two players like this in their widest orientation and changing the graphics in between. Uh, then a band of sidewalk. Um, and you'll notice that we have some control over colors. Um, I showed you the colors, but I meant to tell you that there were like five things you could control. You could set the background of the whole game. So the background in this one is gray. I set the background color. However, right here, I changed the background color to black and then change it back to gray. It's actually like a lighter gray to make it look like a sidewalk. So I can actually control what the screen looks like by simply changing the color as I did here. This is the play field that is set to repeat in a bit pattern. And I turn it on and turn it off, turn it on, turn it off, turn it on, make it yellow, turn it on, turn it off, turn it on yellow, turn it off. I got a double yellow line. So the program is making all these decisions as you're running down the screen. Oh, it's time to change it to yellow. It's time to do this. It's time to do that. Then again, um, one player, just like an air sea battle, gets retasked into different positions, and these are all moving back and forth, um, causing obstacles. And for the game character, there are two chickens. And this is the other player. I call this player zero, this is probably player one. And it's being rewritten in the middle here. It's being written to be the first chicken's shape here and the second chicken's shape here, because they animate separately and now they can be positioned and move vertically. And in that, I was able to create this um, modern version of Space Race, which was the game I was ripping off at the time. Does anyone know Space Race, the arcade game? One of the first. Um, but anyway, again, 
knowing what you know now, you can look at a screen like this and say, oh look, there's the horizontal banding, there's a background color being written, there's play field being written with different colors, there's a player, there's a player, there's two of them, so there's rewriting going on, um, and you can understand how it's done. Grand Prix, same thing. These are the, both players in the three mode, and they get moved <coughs> to simulate motion. With this game, it's kind of funny. The motion is simulated by moving the background, and the players kind of stay the same. And then the relative speeds of the players change their position on this screen. Your player, the red one, your car never moves. And the others, if you're going faster than them, they come in from the right. If you're going slower, they go off to the, to the right. But the speed of your player is indicated by the bushes moving by and actually the little animations, the little dots in the tires that animate that actually show the tires rotating. Let's look more closely at this guy. <clears throat> um, the funny thing about, I mean, this is all made with one player, and one player can only be one color at a time. Um, so you can't actually have, like the cockpit is a hole looking at the road. It's not separate. And same thing with the dots and the tires. The only way to make you know, animating holes or gaps in these things were to turn the bits to zero and let it show through the background. But the tank has come a long way here. This is one player being written with three different animating pictures. And then at this point, I change it, I change new size to get two copies of that player. So these are the exact same pixels over here that are here but they're repositioned, or they're clocked out a second time, thanks to new size. Same thing here, I set the middle bit and leave it duplicated. I set this and I change its color to white. So I'm changing the size, the graphics, and the color of each one of these lines of code of the one player. I then make him the quad size, which is the big aircraft carrier type size. Leave some clear bits change the color of the player to make the racing stripe. So this guy, um, like I said, it's a long way from a tank, which was one color, eight bits by eight bits. These are the kind of things that we could figure out how to do because of new size. This is a game you've heard of. <coughs> well, nice. So, you don't even need me anymore, right? You can look at this. Here's a six-digit score um, in a band. So it's the, in the foliage of the tree, so it's green. I probably use green background for that. So just white, white text on green background using the six-digit display. This one is a modified six-digit display where the fifth digit contains your uh, number of lives that were left. I was telling some guys earlier that um, as a purist in video games, I, I loved Pitfall. I mean, I could see it had so much potential. As soon as you ran off one side of the screen and went on to another, you could go for anywhere in the world. Um, but I thought, I'm going to make this the purist's video game and give you only one life. So how far can you get on one life? And that's it. It would have never succeeded at that. And all of my coworkers at Activision sat on me until I put in three lives. 
um, and I'm glad they did. Um, that was um, a key to Activision's success in video games, actually, was that there were four or five or six of us all in one room. And if we were concentrating on our computer, computers, nobody would talk to you because you were really concentrating very heavily. But then we'd roll back in our chair, our monitors were up here, and we would just test what we just put in. And any, anybody who is sitting back is fair game. People would come around and kibitz and say, that sucks, I like that, you know, I'll make that faster or whatever. And every decision was really down to the one guy who's putting his name on the game. But it was nice to have like a hundred years of combined game design experience looking at it every time you did something. And uh, that was one of the things in Pitfall that, um, that made, made the last week, the last change in the, in the game was from my cohorts to put in three lives. Um, so anyway, it's funny because I had a limited number of bytes. These games, by the way, Pitfall was 4K bytes, 4,096 bytes, uh, not K bytes. I mean, that's how many bytes there were. They had to have every bit of graphics, every sound effect, every um, line of programming, everything had to fit in these 4K bytes. And by the time you're down to the last week in a project, you've used 4,096 of them. Not 4,095, you've used 4,096. And in fact, many times you've put in a new feature and you've been over, and you've gone back and rewritten code over and over and over. Ooh, I can save a byte here if I do this. I can, you know. So it was really tough. Putting that in, not only did I have to make a display for it, I had to make code for it. And the best way I could figure out to bring your new guy in was to drop him from behind the foliage and have him land. You know, you know that's where he does. He kind of comes out of those little two digits. Well, that's because it was the easiest thing I could think of, the thing that required the least code, because my game was already over 4K. But anyway, enough of that. So here we have a specialized six-digit score kernel that has that. Then we've got some foliage. Now, here what do we have? We have the play field, which are, if you remember, there's, there are 40 across instead of 160 across. So they're really four of the player pixels wide each one of these, which is very low resolution. And if I made them like this, it would look really chunky. But if you keep the slope really low, it's not too bad. That's, you know, not as pixelated as you might expect for a f only a 40 pixels across. And my players aren't doing anything. They're done doing the scores. They haven't started doing Pitfall Harry or the alligators yet. So I put them in here to make little branches, just to make it a little prettier. So again, here's a band from here to here that had foliage, play field, and um, branches. Then I leave some play field bits on. If you turn them on and never change them, they're going to be the same all the way down. That was one of the fun things. In fact, how many people haven't seen, you pull the cartridge out on the Atari 2600, what do you get? you get these stripes. Some of them are big stripes, some of them are tiny stripes. It's whatever was in the hardware is repeated line after line after line after line after line. No change is being made, so it doesn't look like graphics. So all I had to do was turn those bits on and let them stay on until the next horizontal band, which was down here. Now, what do you suppose this is? Well, it turns out that the ball takes the same color as the play field. So I can look at this and I can tell you that's the ball because it's brown. So it's a one-bit object, and every frame, what do I do? I move it a tick to the left, move it a tick to the left, move it a tick to the left. Well, I wrote an algorithm 
that determined how much I had to move it to make it look like a swinging vine. So that entire swinging vine was done with one of the one-bit objects and a computer algorithm for how many ticks to make on each, each line. Um, alligators look pretty familiar. It looked like play, player zero or one with, you know, three like this. Uh, if you watch the game, they're always the same. They, they're always the same picture. I didn't have to change them. But again, I, and I had control of background color, right? So I'm pretty sure the background color up here was the dark green, and then I changed it to the light green down here, then to this color, this color, this color, this color. So by changing the background color, I can start to paint this picture and make it what I want. Well, this is actually the play field color, this yellow. Background color is blue. So what this is is play field leaving a hole behind to let the background color show through. And then the three alligators, of course, are sitting there. Um, another interesting thing that you actually have to play it to see, but the next time you play it, watch for this. Pitfall Harry is drawn above the middle of the path. Right? You see his bottommost foot there. He is not drawn during the bottom part of the path. So if he were to stand down here, he would be cut off at the waist. Well, you'll see that when he falls down a pit, um, when he falls into this, he falls, you know, his bottom is, is gone. There's, he, he disappears, disappears a pixel at a time as he goes down because he's not drawn. Um, I did that on purpose. I did that so it looked like he was falling in the middle of the water and through the jaws of the alligator. And on the other screens, when he's dropping down, there's a front cutaway that blocks that part of him. So he has to disappear in, into that. So it was all by design. Um, so again, bans, reuse of players. This is the stuff that we had to do just to make it possible to make a game. I probably spent the first six weeks, eight weeks before there was a screen. For this screen was even like this, and then I tweaked it and made it better. Um, same thing with the, uh, the Grand Prix car. Rather than thinking of a game, I thought, hey, I can make a really sexy looking race car if I change the color and the new size and do all this kind of stuff. And I spent three months making that car, writing the program to make that car possible, and then turned it into a game. Um, kind of similar here. What else have we got? We got Dragster. All right. Again, we have a band up here that's just the pale green background. This is Playfield. And if you watch Dragster, you'll see that these actually move very clunky. They move four pixels at a time because that's my resolution. But if you move that fast enough, it looks like smooth animation. Um, this is 48 bits of graphics. So player zero and player one are used to make this. What that means to me, the game designer, is I can't do anything else here. I can't have an oil slick. I can't have a checkered flag. I can't do anything else in the band where this dragster exists because both player zero and player one are there. All right, I lied. I could have a missile make like a line if I wanted to. I probably could have put a finish line there. I probably should have put a finish line. In fact, is there a finish line? I don't know. I, I may have put a finish line. There. Um, but again, here's a band where I change the color. Here's a band where this is the um, play field. And again, it's four 
bits per pixels. It's very clunky, but that is your tachometer. And it turns red, all we have to do is change color at a certain point from here on out on the scan line, and it becomes red, and it does in this game. And then here's the, one of the fun things. This is sort of a six-digit score kernel, but I wanted to have your uh, gear out here. So instead of doing this, it's one of these, I don't know, you know. <laughs> you basically, I think it was something like that. And then I used the ball to make the decimal point. So imagine you have to think this way just to think about, just to put a, a time on the screen. You had to figure out how to make the Atari 2600 do something that it was never intended to do. <coughs> and <coughs> as an example, I said that um, <coughs> these six-digit scores could be used for score or graphics. And again, this one could be used for text. So when you blow your engine, I change the graphics and, uh, and put this blown down here. So let's start with any questions about how the Atari 2600 hardware works. There will be a quiz. No. Um, like I said, I probably lost half of you. It was a little too technical. But I wanted people to understand that the way it is today is an artist draws a picture. That's your background. That's all they had to do. It's a JPEG, you know. Um, we had to create the background out of multiple changes of background color, multiple changes of objects, multiple this, multiple that, and it could take weeks if not months to make just the background or just the initial display screen. So there's a question. Um, well, in this band, both players are being used for score because it's two digits, as it turns out. And then it doesn't matter. Once they're done, they can do anything else. Um, so in the main display, this, we'll call this player zero, and he never moves uh, horizontally. He's positioned here, and his new size copy is out here. So all I have to do, all I have to do, is I write the graphics for the first player's chicken before he gets displayed. Anytime before he gets displayed, I have to update his graphics register. Then before the second one, or after the first one, and before the second one, I have to write it again. Then same thing, next scan line, I have to do all those writes again. So this is player zero, and that's all he does is two chickens. Then player one is a car, then he's repositioned, He's a car, he's a car, he's a car. So each and every one of the cars is player one. And if you look at certain variations, game variations in freeway, sometimes you will see a semi, which is a quad sized car. You will see three cars in procession. And they're all blue cars because, again, they just, they're just repeats. But I also use new size in these to make, for later levels, have much more traffic you have to dodge. Okay? All of these games were written in assembly language, which is machine code. Um, the 6502 is 
the, the most efficient microprocessor ever made back then, at least. Um, it, um, it, unlike the Z80, it would take five, six, seven, eight microcycles to make something. It could do something in a single machine cycle. So you really, to make all this happen, you had to be writing in, micro, in, in assembly language. I mean, I had to know what clock cycle on the TV I was based on my CPU cycle. And there were three clocks per CPU cycle, as it turns out. So every instruction that I made, a, a store instruction, for example, is three microcycles, which means I can store every eight pixels. So just one instruction from the start to the finish, eight pixels have gone by. That's how fast this thing is running while you're trying to time this stuff. But yeah, it was all assembly language. Yes? Um, the question was, was the RAM separated? I mean, a lot of machines these days have CPU RAM and GPU RAM and stuff like that. Um, first of all, the RAM had nothing to do with the display. The hardware had internal registers, which, yes, they were flip-flops, so they were sort of like memory, but you would set their value. If I set an 8-bit pattern into player zero, I was setting registers inside the, the equivalent of the GPU. The television interface adapter was what it was called. The RAM was 128 bytes. It existed in zero page from 80 hex to FF hex. And it had to do everything you needed RAM for. If you needed to know where the vertical and horizontal position of the tank was, you had to have a byte for each of those. Um, it was also the microprocessor's stack. So if you did a JSR, it, it wiped out the first uh, two bytes or the last two bytes of the of RAM and worked its way down. So we had to reserve space for the stack. Um, 128 bytes was everything that you could save that wasn't already in ROM. One more here. Right. That's, that's interesting. Has everybody noticed that, those black lines, those ugly black lines? They, turns out that that is part of the movement of the, um, of the character. Let's look at Air Sea Battle, if I can remember where it was. Air Sea Battle has them, all right? And what that is, is a, it's a bug in the hardware they didn't want to fix. They didn't want to spend the money to do another chip. Um, the video output circuitry um, is broken at that point and not on. And each time you move the object, each time you reposition an object, it breaks the first eight pixels of the video and it puts out black. Okay? So a lot of us were very annoyed with that. And there were a couple techniques we could do to eliminate those. One is you move the object every every scan line, but you move it zero pixels, most of them. Then that line shows up in every one. And now all it looks like is your, your screen has shifted a little bit because there's this black band you don't notice, okay? Um, a more efficient way to do that is if you're not using the ball object, uh, you set the color of that to black because the ball object takes the color of the play field. So you could set, for this game, because it didn't use much, the play field, I could have just set the ball for black using new size. I could have set it to be eight pixels wide and just stuck it over there and left it turned on and it would cover it up. 
we hated those with a passion. Uh, somebody showed us a video game that had those, we said, that's not Activision quality, forget that, you know. In the early days, we didn't even know it was going to be there when we started writing this code, but uh, that's exactly what that was. It's an artifact of the hardware, and Joe DeCure apologizes, but he could have fixed it, but it would have cost an extra turn of integrated circuit. Oh, here we got one. Yeah, the question is about collision detection. I mean, obviously in a video game, um, when did the missile hit the tank, hit your opposing tank, you have to detect it and blow up the other tank. And the Atari 2600 had built-in collision detection, which was a first and a last. I mean, a lot of the other systems didn't even bother. Um, and the way they did it was um, two pixels trying to be written on the screen at the same time. So yes, even if you had three copies with new size, if you had a missile and it was trying to touch another pixel, they were trying to output them both at the same time, they would set a collision flag. So it was perfect, it was to the pixel. Um, in many cases, it was easier to do software collision detection where, let's say breakout, for example, you've got all these bricks made out of playfield, and you've got the ball bouncing around. Well, the software knows where it's positioning the ball exactly in X and Y position, and if that happens to coincide with one of the bricks, the software can simply decide to blow up the brick. And um, that's really more important to do it that way in a game like Breakout, because what if the ball's moving so fast that it's skipping over? You know, it's only moving at 60 frames a second. It could actually skip over the corner of a brick if you used hardware detection. But by using software detection, you can uh, account for that. Saw so one up here. Um, yeah, people are still making 2600 games, and I applaud that. Um, one of the old timers, I think it was Ed Freeze, who made arcade games, actually came back and said, You know, I never did a 2600 game, and everybody talks about how hard it was, I want to try it. And he did it, found out how hard it was, but, um, you know, but accomplished it. I mean, it's not that difficult. Uh, it just takes a lot of time and thinking outside of the box to make it happen. Um, so I think it's, it's great that people are still doing it. There's kind of a, two different categories. There's people who use enhanced hardware and people who don't. Um, I, I, if I did it, I would just use enhanced hardware. I mean, Pitfall 2 has a separate chip in it that I designed to m try to make the 2600 live a little longer. Um, but, um, yeah, you, you really can't appreciate doing it until you've actually done it yourself, so uh, I'm, I'm really glad people are still doing it. All right, let's move on from questions to stories. Everybody wants to hear stories from these days. Um, I have so many that I kind of have to get help prompted from, from you guys. I mean, for example, people say, where did your game ideas come from? Well, Atari had all these arcade games, and they wanted home versions of their arcade games. So that was pretty easy. I mean, they would basically say, okay, who's going to do this next one, and who's going to do that one? And my proudest moment there, I suppose, is I did a game, uh, Atari 2600 cartridge called Canyon Bomber. And Canyon Bomber had two of Atari's $4,000 arcade games in it. Um, 
Canyon Bomber and Depth Charge in a 2K byte Atari 2600 game. So, um, no, I did my part. I put two of your, tar your uh, arcade games into the home game. But at Activision, we didn't own any arcade games, so everything became original games. And the idea is, I mean, Dragster admittedly is a ripoff of um, a drag racing game that was in the arcade. I think it was an Atari, actually, but I did it at Activision. Um, I did Outlaw, which was a midway game called Gunslinger. So I borrowed. You know, like I said, Freeway was uh, Space Race. But um, there were times we had to come up with original. Well, Freeway is a good example. I, um, we used to go to the consumer electronics shows twice a year. Uh, in June, it was in Chicago at McCormick Place. And I was riding the CES bus from the hotel to McCormick Place, and I watched a guy park his car over on the wrong side of Lakeshore Drive, climb the fence, run across 10 lanes of traffic, climb the fence, and go into the thing because it saved $10 of parking, because they have 20 over here and 10 over here. And I commented to whoever I was sitting next to in the bus, I said, there's a good idea for a video game. And my next video game turned out to be Freeway of two guys trying, how fast can you cross 10 lanes of traffic? Some of the ideas came that way, but um, we got one back there. I was not involved in Pitfall for the NES. I did Pitfall for the 2600. I then, I'm pretty sure, did Pitfall for the Magnavox Odyssey, although people have told me they don't think it's on the Odyssey, but I, I remember doing it, so it must be there. <laughs> um, and I did Pitfall for the Intellivision. Then I did Pitfall 2, and then moved on to other things. I was in the room when Pitfall 2 was done for the Atari 800 and the, Atari, and the C64. We, were, we did them simultaneously in the lab with two guys sitting next to me. Um, but for games that are ports, I don't need to be there. I mean, there's no original new content. It's just you look at the game, and you make the game happen on this other machine using different languages and different hardware. Um, and then after I left Atari or Activision in 1987, they licensed Pitfall off to many other reasons or many other places. I did a pretty good one on uh, 8-bit Sega, I think it was. I don't know. Yeah. One over here. You know, Pitfall, the inspiration for Pitfall was the little running man. Um, for two years, I wanted to do a game that didn't have tanks or jet planes as the main character. I wanted a real animated character. And I had the character for two years. I, I got that by carrying around a graph paper while I'm walking through the lab and freeze and fill in the dots to make my legs match the, the legs, you know. And it ended up with this pretty good looking little running man. Um, and I couldn't come up with a game to put him in right away. So I tried a cops and robbers game, which was really cool because by making every other line of, his, of the graphics black and white, you could make the guy look like he was wearing a black and white suit, which I used in Kaboom, as it turns out. Um, and I tried it and then couldn't, did it, couldn't do it, went on, made another game. Couldn't do it, went on, made another game. So finally I had just finished, I don't know, Grand Prix maybe, and I said, I'm going to use this little running man if it kills me. So I sat down, 
little blank, blank piece of paper, and I drew a little running man, a little stick figure on the thing. And I said, all right, he's running. He must be running on something. I drew a path. Where is the path? Well, Indiana Jones was out. Let's put it in jungle. Um, why is he running? I drew snakes and things and gold bars and things to collect. So there's obstacles and rolling logs and and gold bars to collect and that sort of thing. <laughs> and um, you know, I pretty much had a sketch in 10 minutes of the whole game. Um, then, you know, they were one man, one game projects. I estimated it was about a thousand hours at the computer to then turn it into Pitfall that it is today. Um, it was kind of um, ex just experiential to begin with just exploring and it was, so it wasn't a game I mean to me I had to have some goal or whatever and that's when I put in the timer so now you had 20 minutes to get as much as you could get and that helped the game a lot and I designed the game so that you could not finish it in 20 minutes if you ran on the main path above and I designed the uh, lower path to be really hard. I mean, those scorpions are hard to jump on purpose. Um, but each screen is worth scre three screens above. So you could now get to the end in, within 20 minutes. But what if the three screens you skipped had treasures? So now you had to map the thing. You had to figure out, OK, I can take one shortcut, but then i got to go back up and go back a screen to pick up the silver bar. Then i got to come here. Now I can go down two, and I can do that. Um, so its design was, like I said, 10 minutes on a sheet of paper when I finally just broke down and said, I'm not giving up on this poor guy. And uh, that became Pitfall. And one of the more interesting technical aspects of Pitfall is it has 254 screens, maybe, or maybe 228, I don't remember. It has a number of screens. And if you think about that, I got 128 bytes of RAM. I've got only 4K bytes of ROM. And if it takes me 50 bytes to define a screen, um, what's that, 20 screens? I don't know. I won't do the math here. But it, it just couldn't be done. I, I would have had a small game with just a few screens. So I created a mathematical oddity called a polynomial counter, which is a counter that instead of counting one, two, three, four, five, it has a, a random, pseudo-random pattern. It counts one, 27, 33, four, six, 12, you know. It has this random pattern. And just like a counter that counts up one, two, three, four, five, you can design a counter that counts down five, four, three, two, one. I designed a second polynomial counter that reverses the same sequence as the first one. So imagine what you're looking at is it's just this random sequence of numbers up, and you could have the same random sequence of numbers down. And very simply, you've, if you run off the right side of the screen, I increment that polynomial counter into its next pseudo-random number. If you run off the left side of the screen, I decrement it back to the number before. So now there's an 8-bit number that relates to the screen I'm on and a new 8-bit number that relates to the next one and next one and next one, and it's all reversible. So now I say, okay, I'm going to take a couple bits of the, that 8-bit number and make them a tree pattern. I'm going to take a couple bits and decide whether there's a, a vine, an alligator, a whatever, um, a sinking pit, a non-sinking pit, 
all of the things, everything you see on the screen is a function of some of the bits of that 8-bit number. So now, what I'm telling you is I didn't lay out pitfall. I created a mathematical algorithm that laid out pitfall. And so the next screen to your right was mathematically determined what it was going to be. Well, that's not very good game design, you know, letting the math do it. So instead, in addition, I went through it and looked at every single screen and all of the ones nearby and said, where should I start in this game? And I always had a philosophy when doing games that you don't need a manual to play one of my games. You pick up the stick and start to move and see what happens. Obviously, you move it to the right, the guy starts to run to the right. Push the button, the guy jumps. Really easy. But getting to swinging vines, swinging on vines and jumping over the heads of alligators and all that, those are tougher skills. So I designed it so that you had to learn each skill before you got to the next harder skill by choosing a spot in that maze of 200 and some, some odd screens. That was our CEO, Jim Levy. When we started the company, um, we were leaving Atari, and we, um, we knew what we were going to do. We were going to try to make video game cartridges. Um, some of us had lesser dreams. We just wanted to get out from under Atari's awful management and just make games and have somebody else publish them. But my co-founder, Al Miller, said, no, no, we can, we can publish our own games. You know, that's what we ought to do, raise the money and publish them. I said, yeah, well, maybe we can do that, but nobody's going to give us money if we don't have a business guy. We're just the technical guys, you know. Give me a CEO. <clears throat> Jim Levy was that guy. He came from GRT Records. He was a record industry executive. He knew how to promote games. He knew how to market. He knew all the business. And that was one of his ideas. He said, you know, um, I can sell these, I can give away these patches. They don't cost a lot of money. People will, you know, take pictures of their screens, send them in. In Pitfall's heyday, we received 14,000 letters a week from Pitfall fans, most of them, of course, uh, with um, Polaroid pictures in them, but other people just loving the game. So we had a, we had a staff of maybe 15 people just answering letters, just responding. So um, it was a brilliant idea. I know Microsoft thinks they invented achievements but we all know better. How many has still have their patches? Some of you, yeah, you still have your patches. Yeah? What's the story behind a boy and his blob? Well, a boy and his blob, when I, when I used to describe how that game was going to work, they'd look at me like I was on drugs, but there were no drugs involved. Um, it was just, yeah, I'm going to remake Pitfall. And, um, but had this idea of having a, um, a buddy. I mean, the blob was your buddy. And he was indispensable as your buddy because he was uh, your toolbox. And instead of having a tool-using adventure where you pull down a menu and you select knife or you select sword, you know, I didn't want to go through all that. So I said, well, how can I do this whole thing? And I loved the shape-changing blob um, he is actually patterned after um, a Saturday morning cartoon called The Herculoids. Oh, yeah. There were there were two, <laughs> yeah, uh, Gleep and Gloop, I believe, were the, the two uh, shape-changing blobs. And I don't know, growing up watching those cartoons, if you had a shape-changing blob that could change into anything, you know, you could get in all sorts of trouble. I mean, I really liked that idea. 
Um, so then it was just a matter of how do you control him and flavors of jelly beans just seemed pretty easy. Then I wrote the puns that, you know, or alliteration or whatever, where licorice was ladder and, and the different flavors of jelly beans, you'd remember which flavor you needed to feed him to turn him into whatever. Um, if you ran out of this kind of jelly bean, there were, you know, bean bags you could pick up throughout the maze. And so it was basically a tool-using adventure with a buddy uh, element to it that I just thought was fun. Now, with that game, we bit off more than we can chew. Um, Gary Kitchen, my partner, and I said, you know, everybody, we do these great video games, and they become really successful, and then somebody makes a movie out of it, and somebody makes a toy out of it, and somebody else makes all this money, so let's do all three. So while I was working on a Buenos Blob, the game, we hired a guy who had produced several animated Transformers movies, and he started working on a script for The Boy and His Blob, the movie. And uh, I had connections at Hasbro Toys, and they started working on, you know, I mean, the plush blob character. Well, perfect, right? But uh, we ran out of time, money, and inclination, and backed all that out and just tried to make the best game we could make. No, a boy and his blob, um, all of these properties belong to the publishers. And I've, you know, I'd leave the publisher. Well, a boy and his blob belonged to Absolute Entertainment. And Absolute Entertainment was one of the, another one of the companies that was, you know, that died in one of the crashes. We've had several crashes in the video game business. Um, a company called Bajesco bought the rights to a boy and his blob. And I was involved in a remake of a boy and his blob before Majesco ran out of money. And then when they sold it off to the company or licensed it to the Wii, I had nothing to do with that one. But it was a pretty nice implementation, I think. How did you get hooked on uh, Ghostbusters? Ghostbusters was an interesting story. Um, there had never been a successful movie video game tie-in at that point. Uh, it was really the kiss of death. Um, but... I was working on a game called Car Wars. And in Car Wars, you drove a car around city streets, and you would have an in-game economy where you bought weapons, and you bought this sort of stuff, and you'd equip your car, and you'd do this. And I was about 2 thirds of the way through that. <coughs> I had the driving through the city streets. I had the city map. Um, and I had the in-game economy working where you'd use a little forklift and and apply things and whatever. And uh, the Ghostbusters script came around and you know Hollywood was sending their scripts to the video game companies all the time and one person would read it and if they decide it's good they would show it to three others or whatever and it finally filtered through our company. And um, we could see it was going to be a cult classic. I mean the, 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 the actors, the characters, the, the dialogue, everything was going to be good. But it was like um, you know, three months from coming out. And the hardest thing with a movie game is movie comes out and then you start a game. It takes a year to make the game. By that time, the movie's no longer popular. And some cult hits would still be popular like Ghostbusters, but we looked at each other and said, you know, we cannot do this unless we can make a game that comes out really close to the movie. At least, not, if not simultaneous, it has to come out within a couple months. 
So I stepped up and I said, I will retask Car Wars into Ghostbusters. And you will see a lot of the things. I turned the, the in-game economy, you buy traps and ghost vacuum and that sort of thing they put on the car. You're driving, instead of fighting other cars, you would suck up ghosts while you're driving on your way. There's a city map and all that. And um, so I was able to retask all of that, maybe nine months worth of work, and then kill myself for three months and turn it into the other game. And uh, it was the first game that was ever successfully made with a movie license. And um, it helped that I had a start from the timing. But the most important aspect of that is I didn't design a movie game. I designed a game that took place in the same world as the movie with the same characters. It was a different way. I said, this game has to be fun all by itself, whether it says Ghostbusters on it or not. And in the last week, um, one of our artists created that beautiful Ghostbusters logo that comes up as the title page. And I said, you know what we need is we need to follow the bouncing ball, sing along with Ghostbusters. And um, I didn't have time to do that. I was finishing up the code. So Gary Kitchen and his group out in New Jersey took over the follow the bouncing ball thing and did that whole thing for me. And Adam Bellin, who was a game designer training at my knee, uh, went out and got, um, we licensed some audio for the Commodore 64, and he went to their studio. That's his voice yelling Ghostbusters, and it all came together. And uh, that title screen was one of the uh, more popular aspects of the game. I had reviewers um, just saying that they'd never so thoroughly enjoyed a game, and they never got past the title page. <laughs> How are we doing on time? Anybody know? Okay, so I'm 15 minutes over my hour, but anybody else want any other stories, you let me know. All right. Yeah, I just want to know, as a founder of Activision, do you get some of the money from, like, Skylanders or Call of Duty and those other mega successes? Uh, no. <laughs> I was a founder. I was a stockholder. Um, <clears throat> my stock was mostly sold by... I don't know, five years after I left, didn't hold on to anything. Um, the game actually, I mean, the company was, ran into bankruptcy after I left. In fact, it was down to two employees. And two employees moved from San Francisco area to L.A., and they built it back into a new company. So it's really, it's not the same company. Uh, they just bought the company because the name had value and did a really good job. I mean, Activision... Everybody in the industry likes to trash the publishers, but Activision has done a good job. And if you do like playing $100 million games, the only way that's going to happen is with companies like Activision putting the money into it. I saw a hand over here somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's all true. Um, E.T. was a game designed by Howard Warshaw, and Howard, you know, some of us are still in the video game business. Howard left the video game business to become a psychiatrist 
for video game people. I mean, he basically takes care of people when they've left the industry. <laughs> That's right. Um, but Howard had a no-win proposition given to him. Um, Atari was trying to figure out how to leverage their size against all those upstart companies like Activision, and they said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to use Warner Communications money, and we're going to buy the biggest license out there, Spielberg's E.T. And the amount of money they spent on it was so insane that they had to sell, I think, 8 million games to break even. And a game hadn't sold more than 3.5 million, which was Pitfall, uh, up to that point. So, um, and then they started having meetings in Los Angeles with Spielberg, and so that was kind of fun for Howard. He got to go down and uh, talk games with Spielberg. But because of that, it took longer and longer to get a design and to get a um, contract and all that. And by the time Howard was really sent off to do this game, he had five weeks to finish it. So, you know, I, I would spend nine or ten months on a game. Pitfall took about nine months. Um, and five weeks, just you get what you get. And there's a couple ways of looking at it. You could say that E.T. is the worst game that was ever made. Or you could say that E.T. was the best five-week game ever made in the history of the video game business. And it's true. It actually played. Um, although, when you see it at conventions like this, you walk up to it, there's E.T. sitting at the bottom of the pit. You know, so people walk up, they fall in the pit, they leave. I mean, that's really what happened to most people. They couldn't figure out how to get out of the pit. Um, and he, you know, he regrets that. He probably could have made that a little easier. But anyway, so since Atari paid the money, they built the cartridges. They built 8 million of them. And they sold 4 million of them in the first month. And 3 million of them were returned as defective because he falls in a pit and I can't get out. The game's defective, right? Uh, so the retailers took them in, gave them their money back, sent them back to Atari, demanded their money back. So Atari had a corner of their warehouse with three million games that were li listed as defective. Now you can resell those, but only if you take them out of their box, test them, prove they're not defective, put them back in a new box, shrink wrap them again, you can sell them again. So they got three million over here that they could spend money on and resell. But wait, they have four million over here that are still brand new. So anybody called for more games, they sent them out of this batch. And when the returns came in, they put them in this pile over here. Well, they still had brand new ones when the game stopped selling. So what are they going to do with the ones they can't do anything with unless they fix them? And they ended up in the landfill. And it's true. They did get buried. But they didn't get buried for any secret reason. They got buried because they were returned as defective. Um, and either they got their money back or they got replaced out of the new stock. And so they had these things, what do you do with them? It's just taking up space. So it's all true. Now, Howard also developed Yar's Revenge, which a lot of reviewers have said is the best uh, 2600 game ever. So he just says that just, you know, serves to show the breadth of his design talent. He was able to design the best game ever and the worst game ever. I was making games up until uh, about two and a half years ago full time. Literally full-time, that was all I was doing. I still dabble with designs. Everybody asks me if I'm going to do a 2600 game, and I say I think about it, you know, and whatever. But my current day job is very boring. Um, I work as an expert witness in patent litigation revol revolving around video games because a patent gets issued in 2010 that was something that we did in 1983. 
you know, and uh, so they hire me to go back and research it and find it and write a report and prove it. And, um, you know, to be absolutely brutally honest, if I went out to a VC right now and said I need $20 million to make a video game, they wouldn't give it to me. No, no matter the fact that I made 100 successful games, made one of the most successful games in history, uh, because I'm not 25 years old, not a Stanford. Um, there's, there's a lot of age discrimination in the video game business, as it turns out, but uh, you can still do it, particularly with the uh, iOS. I mean, you can self-publish all you want. Um, but with expert witness work, the more experience you have, the more you're valued. So it's kind of nice to be working in an industry where I'm valued, so that's what I do. Got one over here. When you were uh, creating Pitfall 2, at what point did you decide to put in that extra chip and put all the Um, at what point during the development of Pitfall 2 did I do a custom chip? It was during development, so, you know, anywhere, somewhere in the middle. I was actually, I, before my back and both knees went out, I was a uh, tournament tennis player. And so I, um, I was at the U.S. Open when I had the idea. It was actually, I spent two weeks at the U.S. Open on a vacation. And I called in and I said, here's what we're going to do. The uh, 2600 is nearing the end of its life, but we can be the best. We can continue to make games that are better than what's out there for a pretty low cost by just putting an extra chip in the, in the cartridge. And I designed that chip, spec'd it out, and uh, then we hired a chip designer to um, lay it out and create the chip. But it gave all sorts of new capability, including um, three-part harmonic music, uh, which you'll see in Pitfall 2. It has a full theme, which the 2600 couldn't do that. In fact, Gary Kitchen tells a story that was pretty funny. 2600 had these tones, I mean, you'll hear them, but they are non-harmonic. They don't match the chromatic scale, as it turns out. Some of them do. Some of them are really close. So Gary went through and checked every tone that the Atari 2600 could create and compared them to his Casio keyboard. And he put a mark on the keyboard of the notes that the Atari 2600 could do. Then he hired a jingle writer, a guy who'd written professional jingles for McDonald's and other things like that, brought him in. And he said, I want you to write a jingle for pressure cooker. And here are the notes you can use. Literally, he said, these are the only notes you're allowed to use. Not like Mozart using too many. This is, you got nine. And if you listen to the pressure cooker jingle, it is chromatic. It, you, you, it sounds good. It doesn't have any flats or sharps in it. Um, and this was a guy named, I think, um, I want to say Vince Desi, but that could be wrong. But anyway, a um, professional jingle writer who was given only so many notes to make. So listen to the pressure cooker jingle sometime. And, uh, and that was the first one that was really musical. In the, in the uh, chip I put in the Pitfall 2, it's capable of um, full orchestration. What's your favorite game of all time aside from yours? Everybody asks me that question. I never have an answer. <clears throat> um, I um, I play words with friends, <laughs> and 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 hate the quality of the programming. It's the worst program game ever. I mean, full of bugs. But, um, no, you know, when I play a game, I mean, I, I used to be the pinball wizard at my apartment complex when I was in my mid-20s and could master every game. 
Um, then the arcade games started coming through, and I mastered them all and turned over uh, asteroids for the first time. And um, I would certainly get into these games very heavily until I could master them, and then I'd move on. And so the game that you're spending all your time on is your favorite game, isn't it? For that moment, it has to be. So for me, most of my time is spent on my game. And if it isn't my favorite, I'm not going to work all night on it. So that's really what happens when you're a developer, is your favorite game becomes the one you're working on now, because it has to be, just to keep your concentration on it. And then you move on. All right, sounds like we're getting down there. Well, if there are no more stories I can tell, thanks for coming. I'd like to hear, uh, what were some of the things that, you said Atari was horrible to work with, what, what were some of the specific things that you do? Well, Atari started out as a wonderful company that was entrepreneurial run. Um, you'll hear a lot of stories, hot tub orgies in the, in the conference room and, and lots of drug use. Uh, from 1977, none of that existed. We were very dedicated, highly technical, highly creative people. Um, and it was in, in the coolest job that could be, because video games were just happening. We were making them happen. We were creating the industry. Um, and then Nolan, understandably, sold the company to uh, Warner Communications for $26 million. He got his cash out. Um, and then they just started bringing in bad management. Um, people didn't understand the creative process of making video games. Um, they had promised um, to take 10 cents out of every cartridge and put it into a pool and divide it up among the people who made the games. So if we did really well, you know, we'd start to see some bonuses. They, uh, when our, our boss went and said, let's talk about the bonus, they said, what bonus pool are you talking about? We never said anything like that. So there was a lot of grumbling from that. And then, then they brought in Ray Kassar, who um, has a famous quote. He said, I understand how to work with game designers. I used to work with towel designers. So he didn't recognize that a game designer was a both right brain, left brain thing, where we were dealing with some of the highest, craziest technology at the time and having to do artistic and creative games. Um, it, it was just all kind of... Um, just, you know, falling apart. People were leaving right and left. Uh, David, it's about 1.30. Would you have some time to do some autographs with some folks? You can certainly do that. We can shut down here. I could actually stay at this table if you want. And anybody have any, bring any games they want autographed? Favorite board game? Um, well, I, I did a lot of Boggle, which is sort of a board game. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, I don't know, I'd have to think back on board games. It's been a long time. All right, thank you. Congratulations, you made it to the end of another episode of the Broken Token Podcast. I promise they'll do better next time. Maybe next episode, they'll actually listen to me for a change. Just go easy on the guys. They don't have a lot to work with, but I know their moms would be so proud. We want to hear your feedback, comments, rants, raves, and otherwise, both good and bad. Drop us a line via email at podcast at brokentoken.com. You can also call us at 470-2-CALL-BT. That's 470-222-5528. And leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you, and we might play your message on air in the next episode. 
Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Broken Token and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Broken Token. Britt and Whitney are always posting content between the official episodes and it's a great way to stay involved with the show between the shows. You can find our podcast on the iTunes store and on Stitcher Radio. Just search for Broken Token and subscribe to the show. Like what you hear? Please consider leaving us a review on the iTunes store and on our Stitcher Radio page as the reviews help out the show. Please visit our website at brokentoken.com for articles, reviews, restoration logs, direct show downloads, and expanded show notes for this and every episode. Once again, thanks for listening. The Broken Token Podcast would like to thank the only person on staff who has actual vocal talent, Miss Christy Letzi. And that's me. <laughs> Music for the Broken Token Podcast, graciously provided by Hacy Dixie. Head over to their website at www.hayseed-dixie.com for videos, tour dates, merchandise, and to purchase music. Music